The Veritas Radio Network is guaranteed the right to offend, annoy, agitate, shout heresy, and entertain. You start programming right now. Kind of like the cultural sewage served up on Bravo or CMT, only it's on 24 hours a day. Except Sundays. When the truth gets you angry and you throw your smartphone, remember, no one is forcing you to listen to the truth on the Veritas Radio Network. You can't handle the truth. You're doing that of your own free will. That's what makes this country great and any gay marriage pointless. That's offensive. So there isn't much you can do about it, Chowderhead. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Grab a book, take a vow, and conform your mind to reality. Reality. Otherwise, you're just another Judas-inspired Karl Marx wannabe. And your children will steal your credit card number to buy tickets to the Miley Cyrus Twerkers Ball. I came in like a wrecking ball. Are you ready? Let's get it on. On the Veritas Radio Network's Crusade. This edition of the Constitution Hour here on the Veritas Radio Network's Crusade Channel. I'm your host and moderator, Mike Church. The show, of course, featuring Professor Dr. Kevin Goodsman, author of James Madison and the Making of America, the ever popular. Politically Incorrect Guide to the Constitution, and much, much more. This show is brought to you as a live presentation, and if you miss any of the previous 11 episodes, you can always download them if you're a Founders Pass member at VeritasRadioNetwork.com. You can subscribe by the month. Or by the year, and you can even now purchase a gift membership for that special someone out there that could use a little Veritas, that's Latin for truth, in their life. So on today's show, we've got a hodgepodge of subjects to talk about as we find ourselves nearing the end, thankfully nearing the end, of the uh, presidential contest for 2016 primary edition. We're now joined uh, live here uh, via phone today because of uh, scheduling requirements for uh, this episode with Professor Dr. Kevin Goodsman, who is, I suspect, probably in his office at Western Connecticut State. Professor, how are you? I'm very well, Mike, and I am indeed in my office at Western Connecticut State, yes. So we are... uh Thankfully, nearing the end of campaign 2016, and I thought it may be just a just a bit of a review uh, because so much has happened since we started covering this uh, in the old station and uh, on the in the old country back in July of last year. 
and then all the way through even the last week, uh, you and I have been discussing and have been maintaining pretty much for the entire period that Edward Raphael Cruz, otherwise known as Ted Cruz, uh, is not eligible for the presidency. But, Kevin, that has that still doesn't stop GOP voters from proclaiming that he is and then trudging onto the polls to go vote for him. <laughs> well, it doesn't stop them all. Who knows how many it is stopping. I've actually spoken to people who told me that because of our uh, exploring this issue, they had voted for other candidates. So it has effect. I'm not sure how much, but it has some effect. Yeah, and uh, we should be even more uh, certain about the ineligibility of the other candidate that we have had many conversations about, and that's Marco Rubio. And that would just be simply by virtue of the fact that, yeah, he was born in the country, but he most certainly was not born of parents who had been naturalized or who were therefore natural. And uh, this also seems to, to have been lost on... Many voters, although Rubio is certainly not as popular as Cruz is. Uh, Now, the question did come up, though. Somebody thought, as a matter of fact, Ted Cruz brought it up in one of the debates. I guess he thought he was going to be wise about this, that, well, Donald, uh, actually using other people's definition of natural-born citizen, uh, your mother was born, you were, your mother was born in Scotland, and therefore you're not eligible, Donald, (laughs) which... I just had to chuckle and go like, well, if we're talking 78, 1788 eligibility, all that matters was Donald born in the States, yes, and what was Fred Trump at the time of Donald's birth, an American citizen? Case closed, right? Well, I'm sure that Ted Cruz knows that. He's mocking people who are concerned about the Constitution, which is, of course, a funny posture for the purported constitutionalist uh, candidate to be adopting, but... There you go. Yeah, and uh, finally here, and uh, uh, the first subject of uh, our concern here today on the Constitution Hour is we have a very strange method now. It may not seem strange, but it would certainly seem strange to beings who were alive in the uh, 18th century who might have participated, or the 19th century, early 19th century, who participated in presidential elections they would definitely, uh, they would certainly find some uh, some strange goings on in the in the method by which we select, uh, uh, we choose a president, and uh, certainly if someone had participated in writing and then ratifying the Constitution in 1787 and 1788, uh, and then had perished shortly thereafter. They would have no connection. They wouldn't be able to connect anything that we're currently doing whatsoever to what the original method of selection for the presidency was, would they? Mainly right about that. Certainly when George Washington was elected president first time, most states simply had their state legislators decide who would get those states' electoral votes, and that remained a common way of handling the problem all the way, well, for decades. In fact, South Carolina didn't have a popular election of presidential electors until after the Civil War. 
So it wasn't, an, and of course that was not done voluntarily by the. Uh, that was a change that was not made voluntarily by the people of South Carolina. <laughs> it was one that was imposed on them by the occupying uh, Yankee armies. So the point is that the method we use now, where we have these really low-grade um, campaigns trying to provoke people to choose one or another candidate um, really is a pretty recent vintage. And in the original selection process, when these uh, the, the state legislatures or legislators, the electors, would make the choosing or would do the choosing for the state's choice for, uh, for the presidency, we're in the process right now of severing that final tie by telling, uh, by law in some instances, Kevin, that there is, hey, you know what, uh, this state may have, this district may have voted for Trump and this one may have voted for Mrs. Clinton. This is a winner-take-all state. The electors no longer have to be bound. In the beginning, were the electors, uh, how were the electors chosen, and under what criteria were they bound to vote for the presidency? Hmm. Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, in most states at the beginning, it was the state legislature that chose the electors, and then electors um, were identified with particular candidates. So again, well, in Washington's case, everybody knew that he was going to be the first president, and um, so the electors who were chosen by the state legislators uh, didn't really have any discretion in this matter. Um, this current idea that we should have more or less a referendum in each state on uh, the president right. is is associated with a movement toward more democracy over time. And I think the reasons that direct presidential election was rejected by the people who wrote the Constitution are, are pretty clear in our own experience. I mean, the, the reasons they gave in the Philadelphia Convention and then the ratification campaign were that, well, your average voter wouldn't know most of the people who were eligible to be president or who are qualified to be president. The people they were aware of, they wouldn't know personally. They wouldn't know those people's personalities. They would only have some kind of popular image of them. And, well, look at the way the candidates manipulate the public now. You know, we, uh, in fact, one, my favorite example of this, in 1992, of course, uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore defeated George H.W. Bush and Dan Quayle for president and vice president. And at the time, I was a first-year graduate student in American history at the University of Virginia. I remember the day after the election being on a shuttle bus at UVA and hearing one older gentleman say to another, well, you know, I voted for Clinton because I really think that he's the candidate who cares about people like me. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I bet you believe that Charmin is softer. You know, I mean, <laughs> honestly, it was just, the guy was just echoing advertising copy. So it's painful, the degree of ignorance that is on display when people cast these votes. They, they seem, and uh, pollsters have noted this for years, they seem to be more related to 
kind of which you think is the nicer guy or which you think cares about people like you and, and so on than, than in any way informed by actual public policy concerns. So, uh, again, it's it's just kind of pathetic, I think. Well, it's a continuation of the same, of the idea that there is really nothing that is permanent or is co- or constant or is consistent from uh, one decade or even one presidential term into the next. And there certainly isn't anything in uh, most people's minds any longer, Kevin, that, well, a president of all the offices uh, that are described and brought into existence by the Constitution, the presidency certainly is the one that has very detailed and uh, very, uh, they're very powerful, but they're also detailed uh, powers that he's going to exert, and he's only supposed to exert those powers. Wasn't this one of the grave concerns that many of those who were derisively called anti-federalist had when the Constitution was up for ratification? Sure, yes. (laughs) So, uh, the idea came to mind for people like Elbridge Jerry was that, or, you know, people like Edmund Randolph or George Mason, was that this thing could easily become a monarchy. And how would that happen? Well, it would happen in case the, uh, the people decided that they wanted the kind of authority in this office that was associated with monarchy. So what was that? Well, it was that the that the uh, king should be considered the father of his country, that he was uh, somehow to be understood as a kind of parental figure. And, well, this does seem to be the way most people um, think about the office. It's, it's not really a Republican office anymore. It's, it's got a kind of universal cognizance, and um, the president is supposed to be not only responsible for every problem, but concerned with every individual. I, I, it's impossible for one person to be concerned with every individual or, or be aware of every problem or certainly to have a solution to every problem. So um, it looks to me as if it's just a, a failure on the part of the, um, the electorate to take the responsibility of citizenship seriously. People don't even actually have the idea of citizenship, it seems to me. What they have instead is an idea that, well, um, this is going to be a person who can solve my problem. That's right. Yeah, and Republican government isn't a government that can solve your problems. That's, that's not the point. So it's just painfully stupid. As far as I can tell, it's just, it's just sad, and it makes you think little of your fellow citizens. So I once was really enthusiastic about these uh, Republican cavalcades, and now they strike me as just pathetic. That's, I think, the best word for them. They're, they're kind of pathetic. This is the Constitution Hour with Professor Dr. Kevin Gutzman. I am your moderator, Mike Church. It is a uh, delight to have you. Remember, if you've missed any of the previous uh, 12 episodes of the Constitution Hour, you can download them and listen to them at any time 
at VeritasRadioNetwork.com if you are a Founders Pass member. And we've made it uh, even easier than ever before to sign up because you can now sign up at VeritasRadioNetwork.com. You can even sign a friend up and purchase a gift membership at VeritasRadioNetwork.com. And we also have now activated the brand new uh, preview, Veritas Radio Network preview channel on iTunes, which uh, you can use as a podcast. And we will have previews of this episode and other episodes of the Constitution Hour posted to the iTunes uh, podcast feed, preview feed, uh, by the time you listen to this. So please go to iTunes if you are a listener to podcast or go to Veritas Radio Network for details and find out how you can subscribe to It's free. Don't cost nothing. To the Veritas Radio Network uh, uh, Crusade Channel, uh, Cru- uh, Veritas Radio Network Preview Channel via the podcast service at iTunes. We are, of course, at VeritasRadioNetwork.com. And uh, today we are uh, wrapping up our coverage and discussion uh, thus far of the presidential election and the primary season. And we're talking a little bit about how degraded the process by which the president is chosen has become. Now, before we leave this subject here, Kevin, uh, just uh, two things come to to my mind. Uh, I was reading something uh, today at Winston Elliott's imaginative conservative website um, that uh, was on this subject of federal versus national. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, Alexander Salter is the, is the author of this uh, particular piece, and he was lamenting the fact that we were intended to have, uh, and the result of the American Revolution was most certainly a federal system, and that uh, there, there was, there's nothing in the original, uh, and, he's, and uh, John Taylor, Caroline County also cites this, and I have it in his book, New Views on the Constitution of the United States. Uh, Salter is echoing Taylor when he says there's nothing in the original three uh, documents around the time of the American Revolution. That would be the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and then the U.S. Constitution. Of course, Taylor goes even further and says there's nothing in any of the state constitutions either. But Salter limits his to the three federal documents. And then Salter cited something that very few people that I read that I've ever seen cited. And that is that the selection for the president is most certainly um, based upon one of the most ancient methods of selecting someone like a president. And he even alluded to that you could say that the College of Cardinals is basically uh, of the same federal makeup. And then, you know, you have to give a group of people together who have, through some uh, acts of their life, have uh, been elevated to a certain position. And then that's how you would then select a leader of all leaders. What do you think about all of that? Well, the president isn't supposed to be the leader of all leaders. <laughs> well, this is true. <laughs> He's supposed to be a, a chief executive of a federal republic. And by definition, a federal republic is one with limited uh, cognizance. So... Um, there's certainly, well, there's supposed to be a, a federal system and not a national one is an idea you and I have talked about many, many times before. Right. Um, and I think the federal principle has 
more or less disappeared from the system. Um, there's, uh, in the, I think, the latest issue of National Review, there's an article by Richard Epstein about Scalia's, Justice Scalia's opinion in the Prince case. And basically, um, it makes much of the importance of the Prince decision um, as a vindication of this federal principle. But the problem is, of course, that the Prince decision doesn't really stand for much. Right. Essentially, it stands for that right now uh, the federal government can't conscript state uh, authorities into helping uh, enforce federal uh, policies. Well, if that's all federalism means, <laughs> there's not much to it. I, you know, it, the point of it was supposed to be that uh, essentially that the central government would have very few areas of authority, and um, there's really almost nothing today in the Supreme Court's work that says that the federal government will have limited uh, areas of authority. Essentially, it can do whatever it wants under the current uh, constitutional um, dispensation. So it's, it's very unfortunate that the main principle has come to be the the vanished principle nowadays. Yeah, uh, and you know, I knew there was something that I wanted to, to add to this week's Constitution Hour, and I even told my friend who uh, discusses with me, I'm going to ask Professor Gutzman about this. And that is, you know, we, we spent last week or two episodes ago, we spent nearly the entire episode, Kevin, talking about the legacy of Justice Antonin Scalia. And that's a significant body uh, of work, and he, he had a significant impact, obviously, on Supreme Court and on the federal judiciary. One of the things that Scalia was fond of bringing up and was as fond of quoting is his principle called stare decisis, right? Yeah, well, that just means uh, that in general where the court has kind of 50-50 choice, it will uh, err on the side of precedent. Right, right. Well, what I was going to bring up and I was going to talk to you about, I was going to ask you about, my friend had, who was an attorney by trade, or shall I say, what he calls himself, Kevin, a recovering attorney. So, there you go. <laughs> kind of like you're, too. You're, you're a recovering attorney as well as a historian, right? That's right. <laughs> well, my friend who was a recovering attorney did some of his, the final uh, uh, semester of his study he was fortunate enough to go, uh, I believe he studied law in Scotland at uh, one of the law schools there, Edinburgh, or one of those. And uh, he uh, attended a, uh, a, a class lecture by a Scottish law professor uh, who was asked a question about what he thought about the American use of star rate decisis. And the Scottish law professor just laughed and said, well, you guys got it all wrong. Star rate decisis to us means... That it's it the, what we were based a precedent upon is what the is what the legislature had done, not what the judiciary had interpreted the legislature to have done. I thought you would get a kick out of that. Well, I don't know Scottish law, but that sounds like a more reasonable um, principle than the one that our federal courts have adopted. So <laughs> good for them. Should, shouldn't we though? Shouldn't the court base things? Uh, if they, they'd either rule against something or they would take an act of the legislature and say, well, this is what the legislature said, and this is what the legislature had said previously, 
So then, obviously, the legislature must have, uh, must have meant, or the legislation must mean that. Well, that makes sense. Uh, that makes too much sense, right? Yeah. Okay, that'll never work. All no, right. Not in America. Not in America anymore. America is exceptional. <laughs> well, speaking of exceptional, we'll continue our uh, exceptional conversation here on the Constitution Hour. And when we come back from this uh, subject, or from this uh, uh, break, we will uh, ask the question, and I kind of teased this last week, why has no one addressed the constitutionality of Donald Trump's wall with Mexico? So that's coming up next here on the Constitution Hour with Professor Dr. Kevin Goodsman. Don't touch that iPhone or Android app. We'll be right back with much more right after this on the Veritas Radio Network's Crusade Channel. The Professor is in. Send your questions for Professor Kevin Gutzman to constitution at veritasradionetwork.com. 